Well, I didn't know how many people would show up given the new uh, California mandates, but uh, we did okay. We did okay, Church of the Red Door. Uh, welcome those online. Uh, welcome those uh, who couldn't be with us, who are back with family. I know a lot of folks headed back for, uh, to be with family. Uh, some of your family came here, and some of you exited to go back and see family. It's just the nature, nature of the valley and the nature of our church. So are you ready? You ready for this? This is going to be a powerful, powerful Christmas message. It has nothing to do with a manger. But it's going to be a powerful Christmas message. Why? Because every single message from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is, in fact, a Christmas message. Centers around one person. His name was Jesus, and his power to transform our lives will never cease to amaze me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for our community. We thank you for this unique place that we live. Uh, it's a strange kind of place, this valley, Lord, and yet you put us here. Lord, in touching the valley, in some ways we touch all kinds of places. People come in, they leave, they, they're here for a few weeks and they're gone, they're here for a few years and, and they're gone again. But Lord, you have a, an amazing way to speak in any culture, in any time. Imagine, can't imagine those early disciples, Lord, just fishermen, tax collectors, thinking that somewhere halfway around the world, they would, a group like this and a place like Palm Springs where 130 golf courses exist and pickleball courts and tennis courts and all kinds of steak places every, on every corner, we don't have a church on every corner, but every, every corner seems to have a stake place, weird place we live in. Yet, Lord, your, your voice through the gospel, through your son, his words still resonate in the hearts of men and women. It's the only thing I know, Lord, that changes lives. Help us unpack for us your manna this morning, your word. Do this with your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So I did kind of think about a Christmas message. I figure Paul's got that covered on Christmas Eve. And, and, uh, but every, as I said, every message is a Christmas message. I really felt compelled because we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. For those of you who are with us maybe for the first time, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. We're trying to allow Jesus to speak for himself. Everybody has something to say about Jesus. Islam has something to say about Jesus. Buddhism, Hinduism, just anybody on the street corner or somebody you might stand out on the first tee of the, uh, maybe you're playing golf this week, stand on the first tee, tell me what you think when you think of Jesus and you'll get all kinds of answers. And one of the challenging things is just to allow Jesus to speak for himself. He made, we're going to look at this morning, he made a dramatic proclamation in the Gospel of John but I want to go back where we were last week. Normally, I set up context for you. Uh, we looked at Moses and the selection of the 70. We see Jesus as this, as this new Moses. If you don't understand Moses, if you don't understand the, the, the Tanakh, if you don't understand even more specifically the first five books, uh, this, this Torah that we look at, then it's going to be difficult for you to understand the ministry and the life of Jesus. I hope it's beginning to explode in your mind as you see this unpacked before your eyes like he's living out Moses' life. It's like Moses was a template. And I, I kind of just, I, there were two things that we really looked at last week in Numbers chapter 11, and one of them I kind of skirted because why? Well, it's just so weird. 
And I didn't have time to get into it, and I was going on. I was going to do something Christmassy this morning. I was maybe even going to go press on into chapter, our next chapter in the Gospel of Luke. And then I just felt compelled in my spirit, tell this weird story. So I've entitled it this morning, Birds from Heaven or Birds from Hell. Anybody remember... Well, my mother told me years ago when I was a little kid that the most terrifying movie she ever saw was Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Now, I've got to tell you, that is impressive to me because uh, having watched it, it's not that terrifying now with all the graphics and all the crazy stuff that happens in places like this in a theater and the surround sound and everything. It's not that scary, but I guess at that time it was terrifying to her. And maybe it still is. Uh, do you remember this, uh, the birds there, Alfred Hitchcock, where the birds came in and began to, you know, bang into things and crash into people and trying to, you know, take... They were crows. I don't know why that was so scary, but evidently it was quite scary. Well, this is kind of like that. This is a story kind of like the birds, but rather than... They're not attacking people, but it is weird. It is on the level of weird like the birds, so I'm going to take you back to Numbers chapter 11. I kind of read between the lines. We were looking at Moses and his selection of the 70 and the Holy Spirit being placed upon them and then prophesying, if you remember, last week. And I kind of cut and pasted around this kind of strange parallel story that's happening. You want to read it? Let's go. Numbers chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the people became like those, now think about this, they became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. That ever happened to you? Got any complaints working this week, uh, you know, in the hearing of the Lord? I, I, I struggle, I struggle living in this world not to complain. I watch myself, I'm constantly trying to monitor, Jeff, just don't complain. It really impacted me last week. When Dennis was talking about prayer, and I, you know, we've had Jonathan preach for us via when we were not meeting in person. Some of you don't know, you know, Jonathan was an Armani model. I mean, he'd gone, he was in Italy, he was in New York, he was this, he was, you drive down the deals and see his picture on the, on the, on these roadside uh, big signs and things. It was Jono. I've known Jono since he was, uh, since he was a born really and uh and it's amazing that he went through this incredible struggle and it looked like going from that place six two whatever to down to 100 pounds basically and dennis made the comment he said lord even if you don't heal my son i will worship you i will continue to follow you that's the antithesis of what was going on here it's easy to complain. It's easy just to gripe about everything. And the older I get, the more easy it becomes. Somehow, when I was younger, I didn't really complain that much. Everything was kind of new. And I feel the pull of becoming the grumpy old man. I just do. I feel it in my spirit, and I don't want it to overtake me. But when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and now, gets this. This is really strange. It just gets this whole this whole episode is just strange. Fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of them of the outskirts of the camp. Some of them on the outskirts were burned up. It's just wild, wild. And you say, well, that see that's that's why I don't follow this Bible because it's just this bizarre stories about God, you know, and His 
fire-consuming people and places and hell and all this other kind of stuff. I just can't read the Bible for reasons exactly like this, Jeff. This is why I don't. Let's go deeper. This is speaking to the very nature of God. Deuteronomy said that God is a consuming fire. Isaiah had said, uh, who of us can even dwell among this consuming fire? Who can do this? Who can stay? Let me say, it's not God trying to be a fire-breathing dragon. It is his nature of holiness. Now, what does that mean? God's nature, God's passionate descriptor is love. And when he sees something that's going to mar even generations from now, mar people from being able to love and people suffering because of sin in my life, he hates it. His nature, his very nature is a consuming fire and wants to consume that well, that thing in me that will cause pain either to those immediately around me or even to generations down the line. He can see it all. He hates sin. So it's his nature that is purifying. You know, fire can do a couple of things. It can burn something up, but it can also remove the dross from silver or gold or things like that. Fire has some very positive benefits. It's a picture of his purity. And as they began to complain, fire just... Now remember, their story is a picture in the seen realm of our story in the, in the unseen realm. They help us understand the unseen realm. And what's fascinating to me is how powerfully the gospel is about to be preached here. Remember, Moses is a prefiguring of Jesus. So what happens... The people therefore cried out to Moses. And Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. See, what Jesus does for us is intercedes on our behalf. Lord, they deserve fire. I can tell you I do. I'll never, there's never any, even a shred of holier than thou in me. Why? Because I know my life. I know my past. I know my history. I know the thoughts that still want to creep in and pervade my mind from day to day. I know I'm deserving of being one of those on the outskirts of the camp. And yet as I plead out and cry out, Jesus, well, the fire is... Well, it's, it's put out in the person of Jesus, meaning he took all of the fire for us, and it died out. This is, again, if you'll see, this is, this is a preaching of the gospel in a very weird story. It gets weirder. Now, verse 4, the rabble, real quick comment on the rabble. It's only used one time in all of the Old Testament, the rabble. The rabble really just means a mixed multitude. These were non-Israelites. A lot of people don't realize there were a lot of non-Jews in this massive exodus of people coming out. Some may have been Egyptian citizens that decided their God's much better than our Petty, petty gods, we're going with them. They're the winners, you know. Other might have been Semitic tribes, Semitic people that lived in and around the land that just kind of started to tag along with them. But some of this rabble, notice, who were among them had greedy desires. 
And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? This is going somewhere. It's weird, but it's going somewhere. We remember, okay, this is, a, this is laughable, but it's so true of us. We remember what? The fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. Free because you didn't have any money because you were slaves. Are you crazy? I mean, we used to eat this free. Remember, this is called what psychologists call selective memory. You can think back at times in your life, maybe, man, you know that young, beautiful first love of yours, and oh, you just had this picture of her, you know, kind of coming up out of the water, you know, on that trip you went on, or, you know, you saw her at the pool or something, and, and all these thoughts go rambling through your mind, this selective memory, not realizing, realizing how chaotic how destructive, how, you know, it may have just, but you just get these snapshots of pictures of the way it used to be. And I'm going to talk to you. I really do believe that Satan uses selective memory to draw us back. Remember how it used to be. Oh, if I could just get back. Oh, if, you know, you know, how many divorces do you think happen because somebody has selective memory about somebody that they dated, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago? Oh, if my wife could just be like, her, or if my husband could just treat me like, you know, old Johnny did, you know, we used to, I used to wear his letter jacket, and we were soulmates, and all that other stuff, you just, this selective memory, and of course, you see Johnny today, and you're like, ah, eh, not so much. <laughs> Are you with me? We have selective memory. They did. Oh, the fish that we got free in Egypt, and the cucumbers, and the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlics, you were slaves, forced to hard labor day after day after day, and the selective memory takes over, and all you can remember, well, was the way we used to eat in Egypt. But now our appetite is gone, and there is nothing at all to look at except for this, and I'm going to add an adjective, stinking manna. We're sick of it. Now, the manna was like the coriander seed, and its appearance like that of delium, or bedolach in Hebrew. And it was like a gum resin. And the people would go about, now get this, we're going to come back to this, gather it, grind it between two millstones, beat it in the mortar, boil it in the pot, and they would make this cakes out of it. And its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil, and when the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Manna, interesting. We're sick of this stuff. It was God's provision for them. And they got sick of it. And their selective memory took over. And oh, wasn't it good when we were slaves? We got everything free. Are we not like that? Sometimes we come out and say, ah, oh, it was much better when before I served Jesus and I, had, I could rule my own kingdom. Was it that great? Was it that great? I mean, there are moments in my life where I, I am seduced into thinking back about times before I, I was completely under the rule and the authority of Jesus for my life. I went where I wanted. I did what I wanted to do. I just kind of, it was just kind of what, it, I, I got to rule my own roost. And sometimes I think back, oh, it was nice back then, and now I'm under kind of the authority of Jesus, and I can't really do everything that I want to do. And boy, I remember those good times. Well, I, yeah, I remember those good times. 
in snapshots of selective memory, but mo most of all, I remember the pain that I was causing to other people in my life and the catastrophes that just seemed to follow me and all the, well, even the moments that I even wanted to take my own life at various points. They were few and far between, but it was a, it was a life of chaos. And I, but I was, if you'd have met me on the street, I was just a normal guy. I mean, I wouldn't have, well, I'll let other people say whether they thought I was that normal or not. But anyway, you get the picture. Now, let's go on here and read the, continue with the story. This is weird, okay? This is weird. I'm going to skip forward to verse 18 because we're, again, this, this is kind of wedged in between two things that are occurring. Say to the people, this is God speaking to Moses, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat for you have wept in the ears of the Lord saying, oh, that someone would give us meat to eat for we were all so well off in Egypt. By the way, I think the rabble were not Israelites, and as a result, they're complaining, and the, and, and the Israelites went, well, they're right. We, we need meat to eat. I, I don't know that, again, the rabble, were, the, the rabble rousers were the first ones to begin to talk about this. Can I tell you, we live in a culture, and if you listen to all the murmuring and complaining, whether it's political or taxation or you know, what the, the constraints on the virus and all that, just the myriad of things that you can just get swept up into and all of a sudden you're complaining and your whole life doesn't look like anything anybody else would want to imitate. That person has Jesus, well, they sound just like my neighbor. All they do is complain and they sound like me. I got, we, ha, we must be distinctive. Don't listen to the rabble. You're a follower of Jesus. We are going, we will live eternally. Do you understand that? What complaint could there be? Oh, that someone would give us this meat, for we were well off in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat, and you shall eat. Not one day, not two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but an entire month. And they're thinking, oh, beautiful, Right? until it comes out of your nostrils. Mm, not so much. And become loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, the people among who I am are 600,000 on foot, yet you have said I will give them meat so that they may eat for an entire month? Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? And the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So let's just recap here. The rabble starts the complaining. The Israelites say, yeah, that's right. Hey, I remember Egypt. Everything was free and cucumbers and melons and leeks. Oh, it was, it was such a good time as we were being whipped and as we were, you know, forced to get up early and double the bricks and the mortar and build the, you know, build the things for the Pharaoh. Oh, it was, those were wonderful days. Can't believe how good they were. Think about this for a second. And now God says, okay, I'm going to give them what they want. Do you realize that sometimes I look back at my life and I know the Lord was involved in giving me exactly what I had asked for? And can I tell you, it became loathsome. It came out my nostrils. Maybe not literally, 
But I'll tell you, I think there are moments in life that God gives you exactly what you are complaining about until you can no longer take yourself. You want it? I'm going to give it to you. You say, well, that's not very loving of God. Or is it? You know, I always think about the Amish. You know, they, they get to a certain point and then they take their kids and they just send them out into the world. And they say, you go out and experience the world and you decide whether or not you want to come back and be part of our faithful community. I'm, not, I'm, I'm neither lifting it up or not. I'm just saying that's kind of how the Amish are. I think there are moments where God says, okay, you, you want your way? You want, to, you want to do your own thing? You want to go your own way? Go ahead. And I'm telling you, I've had moments in my life and I look back and it became loathsome. It came out my nose. And I think that was actually a loving act of God. I know that sounds strange. And I'm not, I'm not a provocateur here. I'm not asking anybody to go out and say, okay, I'm just going to go for it now. I'm not, I had this sin I wanted to go for. I promise you it will cause death and it will cause destruction and it will cause pain. And, and some of these things you'll have to live with for the rest of your lives. But if it causes you to turn back to the Creator, some of you may be in that place right now. You know it's becoming loathsome. Doing my own thing is just slavery. It feels free when I talk about it and think about it and have selective memory. But in the end, it's just loathsome. Now let's finish here. Numbers 11, verse 31. Are you ready? Here's the rest of the story. And... Now there went forth a wind from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp about two cubits deep. A cubit typically is from the elbow up to, well, the middle finger. I won't do that for you this morning, but the elbow to the middle finger, that was a cubit, about two and a half uh, excuse me, about two cubits. It would have been, oh, you know, maybe, I don't know what, two and a half, three feet deep. Everywhere. Everywhere. They were just everywhere. And they were all over the surface of the ground, and the people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who had gathered least gathered ten homers. What's a homer? Well, I, I looked at some calculations, and they bushel and this and that. You've got to go through like five different calculations to get it. But at the end, roughly, are you ready for this? This will blow your mind. The one who collected the least, about 1,900 birds. Because why? Because it's going to have to last us. We're out here in the wilderness. God's not going to provide. God's not going to show up. What was happening? They just had zero faith. I mean, they, they just like, whatever I see, I go after. I don't trust the Lord in the future. I'm not going to trust the Lord with what I have. No way. I just, you could see what was going on here. And they spread them out all around the camp. Can you just picture that? And while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck that people with a very severe plague. And so the name of that place was called Kibroth Hata'avah. Okay, and what that means is a grave of greediness or graves of lust because there they buried the people who had been greedy. And from Kibroth Hatahava, the people set out 
from Katsaroth, and they remained at Katsaroth. So here's the story. He said, why do you tell this story? Why, why, why is this in the Bible? It's just so strange. Because when you're going through the teaching of Jesus, Jesus begins to say some pretty strange things about himself, and he begins to attach his name to the very metaphor of manna. Now think about this for a second, because this is going to be instructive. John chapter 6, verse 26 Jesus answered and said, Truly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and you were filled. He had, you know, you know the story of feeding the 4,000 and feeding the 5,000. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures, well, it endures to eternal life. Now he's linking the seen to the eternal, which the Son of Man will give you on for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore, they said, well, what shall we do that we do the works of God? He said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. And they said, what do you do for a sign that we may be see and believe you? What work do you perform? Same thing people are still asking today. Show me, Jesus. I mean, are you just a carpenter or somebody purportedly that rose from the dead years ago? Are you a master teacher? What are you? Prove something to us. People ask that intuitively, whether they're aware that they're asking that or not. They're asking that all over this valley. Who was Jesus? And religion can get in the way. It gets very complicated. People have all kinds of thoughts about Jesus. And then they said, well, they want a sign. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. What is he talking? He's talking about Numbers 11. That's what they're saying. And Jesus then said, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said, Lord, always give us this kind of bread. He's talking exactly about this weird bird-infested manifest thing. I don't know. He's, he's saying it's that. But it's not Moses. It's your father who gives you true bread. And then he says something remarkable. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. I don't know if you just got that. Will not hunger, will never thirst. And I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe, and all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will not cast out, for I have come down from heaven, like the manna, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him has eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on that day. How so? Eat the manna. We don't like the manna. The manna's dull. It's day after day. We've got to work it and prepare it and grind it and smash it. Such it is with Jesus. I 
have all the time. Isn't this a mysterious book? It's hard to understand what Jesus is saying. The disciples couldn't understand it. Later on, the Holy Spirit would reveal it to them. But even I, they're still unpacking well into the book of Acts. What's going on? Who is Jesus? What did he say about him? It takes a lot of work. We could go right back to what we looked at. They had to gather it. They had to grind it between the millstones, beat it in mortar, boil it in the pot, and then make cakes with it so it would be edible. Jesus is not as simple as something like just getting a little saying, a little, uh, like some celebrity on TMZ or something, makes a little comment, and it's just easily understandable. Jesus said some mysterious, strange things, and this is one of them. I am the manna that has come down out of heaven, and I have the authority over everything over the entire cosmos. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Yeah, you've got to grind it and mill it and bake it and boil it and all that. It takes some work, but I'm, I'm telling you, when you do, life will come. What is it about understanding Jesus? What is it about understanding Jesus? That you, well, you have selective memory and it's just not enough. Some, I just, three quick things. I think number one, do you trust Jesus completely for salvation? Now, I know some of you go, well, yes, 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 we know that. No, 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 stop for a second. I meet people all the time. And they've been going to church for years, and they have all these thoughts, and they've gone to Bible studies, and I say, and then they're maybe on their deathbed, and I said, you know, are you, you know it's, it won't be long, and you, you'll be with Jesus. And they say, well, you know, I hope so. Well, you hope so. I, you know, you know I, I hope I make it in. I, I. You know, I'd like that to be true. I, stop for a second. The manna is enough for salvation. Jesus just said it. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The manna is enough. Don't think about Egypt. Don't think about all the other things that are uh, swirling around in Egypt, about eternal life and about all these different kind of things. The manna is enough. What about just joy? I, 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 I need something extra, Jesus and religion. And, look, just coming to church is not going to give you the kind of joy that you need to sustain you for, for the entire week or for the rest of your life. In fact, you know, you just need intimacy with the creator of the universe. Here is the promise in the psalm, Psalm 16, verse 7. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. This is intimacy, a picture. I have set the Lord continuously before me. He is at my right hand. I won't be shaken. My heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will dwell securely. I'm thinking eternally and not, not only here in this life, but the next. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life in your presence is the fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forever. I like joy and pleasures. I like that. You're a Christian. You can't say that. Joy and pleasure, that's for the... No, I love joy and pleasure. The manna is enough to bring me great joy and tremendous pleasure. Tremendous pleasure. Oh, I ride the cyclical nature of being a human being, and my emotions are a little bit here and there. But I have a gaining, uh, just a, a, a momentum building in me, 
a steadiness that continues to be able to cut through all kinds of chaos and tragedy in my own life. And he brings me, even in the midst of it, joy and pleasure. Is the manna enough? I'm asking you this morning. And then lastly, what about just direction for your life? You know, people, well, I need some extra direction. And you you find yourself in the bookstores all the time with all the self-help books and this and that. I've known people that went to church and that they they read their horoscopes and they're looking for this and they're looking for mentors and counselors and all these other kinds of things just constantly perpetually and and somehow just they don't they don't trust themselves to hear from the spirit and be directed into their lives they just they don't they need and the man is just not enough i've got to get there's other wisdom that i need there's other counsel that i need they just don't understand i you know this whole christianity business is good for you know this part of my life but in terms of the fullness of my life there's just so much more i need John 10 says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That's what you need. The manna is enough. Listen to his voice. He'll guide you into the right counsel. He'll guide you into the right understanding, but it is his voice. You don't need a multiplicity of voices in your life for direction. You need one. The manna is enough. In this case, the shepherd, the manna, the rock, the water, the lamb of God is enough. The manna, the manna is enough. So in closing, is it enough for you or do you long for Egypt, your old dreams, your kingdom, or is it selective memory? You know, our adversary, he is, he's a slick one. He's often seen as a serpent, right? You know, we see that. Tells you seductive little lies and no one's exempt from this kind of temptation. And I went through and I was looking through the pictures and I thought, well, I'll get a nice little snake, a little garter snake and this and that. I'm saying, Satan's not a garter snake. He is out for blood. He comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And one of his tools is selective memory. Oh, in Egypt it was all free and wasn't it great when we were there, was it? 2 Corinthians 11.3 Paul says to this church at Corinth, a, a place somewhat similar to this. It was a very affluent. It was a port city. A lot, of, a lot of activities, commerce, a lot of money was there. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to the manna. It's Christ, but it's the manna. Somehow the manna will not be enough. My second question to you is, haven't you had enough of Egypt? Maybe some of you here today are still living in Egypt as slaves, and maybe it's good time now, your health is good, and your back swings on plane, and you've got plenty of club head speed, and you know, and all that kind of thing, and everything's looking pretty much going your way. At some point, can I tell you, I live in the land of ex-golf pros, and as an ex-golf professional myself, I can tell you Uh, I've got good friends, dear friends. You know, Frank Beard uh, is uh, the father of Michael Beard. Got some of the Pepperdine guys here this morning uh, from their golf team. Congratulations, national champions. Uh, NCAA Division I national champions this last year. That's right. 
And uh, Frank won 11 times on the PGA Tour, 11 times on the PGA Tour. If you did that today, you would be, I mean, you would just write your own ticket. There are guys that won three or four times that are just household names and will make hundreds of millions of dollars. And there's Frank having won, you know, played on a Ryder Cup, won 11 times on the tour. And I was with him one day, we were playing golf and we were out at a place called the Palms and we were on about number four or five, I forget, I think it was number five. And, uh, and that somebody had heard that Frank had made a hole-in-one on the second hole, which was a par three, and it was a guest, and he came up, and, you know, Frank's just kind of, it's, it's, no offense, Frank, if you ever watch this, but he just looks like a little old man now, because that's what happens to all of us. We, when we get a little older, we just look like little old men, and, and a guy came up, and he kind of tapped him on the back a little bit, and heard he'd made a hole-in-one, and he said, well, that's so good, sir. He goes, is that your first one? And I just kind of went, oh. And Frank said, no, I've made one or two in my life. And I kind of took the guy aside and I said, do you know who you're talking to? Haven't you had enough of the old days at all? It will come to an end. Women, there's some women that beautiful, they're beautiful, the glow of the spirit in them. But at some point, you know, not so much. Men, you know, we start to shift a little bit, get down here, and works hard. First Peter chapter 4, verse 3, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality and lust. Lust, remember? The graves of greediness, the graves of lusts. Drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. It's enough. It's enough. Or do you want it to come out your nose? It's enough. So in closing, uh, do you want spiritual vibrancy? I'm telling you this morning, it won't, it doesn't exist, and some of the things that you're pursuing here today will not exist. It will come out your nose in the end. I looked at this, saw this this last week. It's uh, from the NLP Center, the Neuro Linguistic Programming and Certified Coaching. Here's what they say. It's a secular organization. It says, wealth, lust, and power are reasons that might contribute to your feeling of why am I never satisfied. Again, the, the world knows this. Somehow, I don't know why we don't. At times, we don't remember this. We should. Human desire and want are insatiable. You do realize that. Lust is never satisfied. The more you have, the more you will want. This is very true when it comes to money and power or lust. Getting your hands on these tangibles will only make you want more, and then it'll end up leading you to a life of dissatisfaction. If you truly want to know how to be content, you need to realize that pining for such materialistic possessions might only cause pain to you in the long run. Secular psychological insight studies, right? According to the findings of the Grant study, it has been clarified that neither power nor money results in more happiness or a more fulfilling life. Although it is true that being successful in your career is important for having a sense of contentment with life, this is only a fraction of a much larger plethora of things that will actually make you happy. A young man may argue against the importance of money and power. However, the experience and age it becomes clear that despite having both, they will not be the key ingredients that led to happiness and fulfilling relationship in one's life. You could, you could, put that, you could pull that right out of the Bible. It just will not satisfy. The manna 
is enough. The manna come down from heaven. Have you tasted that manna? Do you regularly partake of the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood? I know that sounds strange. It's hyperbolic language. It's symbolic language Jesus used. It's not just you being able to go and take communion. It may involve that symbolically, but every day are you eating of the words of Jesus for your joy and pleasure and salvation and direction? Are you doing that or are you relying on yourself? Will you die? Will you die in these valleys of greedy, greediness, in these graves of greediness? Please, I beg you, on behalf of the king of the universe, believe into the words of Jesus. The manna is enough. Now that is a Christmas story. It is. It's just a Christmas story. It's the very purpose for which he came. Are you ready to enjoy an incredible, we know we know the song. Would you stand to your feet now? I'm going to pray before we sing this last song. And, and I'm going to ask the Lord, just in summary, I'm going to ask the Lord. I, actually, I very rarely write out my prayers, but I just felt I wanted to write this one short paragraph prayer out before we close and worship. And can I tell you before we do, I hope you have a glorious Christmas. Eat the manna. Lord Jesus, I want to crave you alone. I know that my memories of the past are often colored by my arch enemy. I know they led to death, and yet I still find my mind wandering back to those days. Lord, forgive me. Just tell the Lord that if that's been your case maybe for a while, a longing for the past, the glory days. Lord, forgive me. Change my heart. Lead me not into temptation, Lord, but give me exactly what I need to devote myself to you forever. You and you alone are my king. You came in a manger, but now you are at the right hand of the Father. Help me in this, Jesus. Help me listen and help me hear your voice. Amen.